podcast ain't played nobody. Bill Saban or Saban, wow, you're going. We're jumping right into the question, everybody. Saban or teams over ten in the Big Twelve on the day Saban retires. <laughs> One more time, Saban or so that's Saban national titles or teams over ten in the Big Twelve on the day that Nick Saban retires. Saban. Retire date would be 2023, 2024. Right. But either way, we've always assumed two and a half or three national titles, which means we have to think that the Big 12 has at least 13 teams in it. I'm definitely going saving national titles then. I would love to. I mean, anytime. Hey, listen, Bob Bowlesby, I know I've made fun of you a lot on Twitter. Um, A lot. So I apologize for that. But anytime you want to call me and, and talk about my 2014 Big 12 idea, like I'm all for it. Um, but I don't think it happens and it probably doesn't happen before 2023 or whatever. Thank you. User at JJ Dean. This is podcast. Ain't play nobody. It's college football marriage of numbers and words. My name is Steven Godfrey. You can reach me at 38 Godfrey that there over yonder in Missouri is the robot bill Connolly. You can, fe- you can feature him. Yeah. I mean, you can feature him in your life if you want to, but you can definitely reach him at SBN underscore bill C bill. Welcome to the bonus the bonus episode um we are going to have a real live interview with someone other than ourselves i'll let bill talk about that in just a second and then we are going to jump into the mailbag the mailbag now being exclusively called from the hash hashtag ask papn on the twitters as and well as the reddit <laughs> slash r slash papn and i jumped your lead yeah, no, I was just gonna like we can't say exclusively on Twitter because it's exclusively on Twitter. Or yeah, you didn't uh, let me finish the thought. Yeah, I jumped in. I assumed you got it wrong. My bad. Bill, tell me about Kevin Kelly. Why are we talking to him? Because he never punts. Who is this man who never punts? I don't punt either. I don't punt at anything in life. Well, we are. Yeah. So we, uh, like we said on the midweek show um, on Wednesday, we are going to try to have a second show each week and that's going to be a a mailbag show, but it's also going to be an interview show, hopefully as often as not. And uh, the first one up, we decided to get, have some fun with right out of the gates and talk to Kevin Kelly of Pulaski Academy in Little Rock, Arkansas, Um, multi state champion, but just about every single freaking year now uh, in Arkansas uh, has built a powerhouse there, and uh, you you probably, if you've heard the name, it's probably not because he's won a billion state titles, but because he doesn't punt. Um, that, that is his calling card, and we're going to try to you know, dive into a little bit more than just the punting aspect of things. Uh, what was it? A, I interviewed Kevin Kelly for a piece about uh, Arkansas after Bielema's first year, oh, so right. a while back. Um, he's no stranger to national media. There was a feature on him in, at the old Grandland. Um, gosh, there's been what several national stories about him. Maybe. What is it about, uh, other than not punting? He's, I guess I would describe him as a, he's extremely honest, transparently honest. And maybe that's just by virtue of the fact he's a high school coach. He doesn't have to adhere to all the politics and media standards of college or NFL, but He's extremely honest, as you guys are about to hear, and he's extremely uh, transparent in his desires and his opinions, um, which is nice. It was it was really refreshing to talk to him because, God, how many coaches just you know they want to say something, but they, they just never have either the ability or the or the I don't know the guts to just say it. 
And it was fun. Like you, uh, I just pulled up the story you wrote uh, with him, with him and about Bielema back in 2014. Um, it's a really interesting piece. We should link to it if I remember, and I probably won't. Um, about like Bielema's style and how it would or wouldn't work in the in the SEC and in Arkansas and everything. Uh, and this was four years ago. Uh, clearly, as we found out, it didn't work. Um, and then you go back and look at some of the things Kelly said at the time. Um, he said, everybody's entitled to their opinion. Everybody has an agenda, including myself. Brett's a good guy, but I'm a numbers person. I want to see statistics when somebody makes a statement that backs it up uh, because I believe more often than not, people are wrong. Uh, and and I, I, this was about you know him bringing a, a plotting style and, and openly hating tempo uh, in a state where high school offenses run a lot of tempo. So um, it's kind of interesting to see that that kind of played out more like he thought it would than, than anything else. And now he's got a tempo coach at the University of Arkansas. All right. Well, without further ado, let's talk to Kevin Kelly. If you Google Kevin Kelly punts, uh, you will see articles from the Washington Post, 538.com, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I, I've seen it many times just kind of referred to as coach never punts. I've done it too. Uh, but we are joined by the head coach of Pulaski Academy, the, the, the Pulaski Academy Bruins uh, in Arkansas, uh, Mr. Kevin Kelly. How are you doing, coach? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Um, it is funny. I mean, you have you, you have carved out a niche, and, and it's, it's not even a niche that has anything to do with succeeding, even though you succeed. <laughs> uh, it's just it, it's this one specific thing that apparently blows people's minds enough that it's still unique a few years after you started kind of gaining uh, notoriety. But um, just for, for just for background, I guess, in case they haven't Googled Kevin Kelly punts, um, the quick what's the quick background on how and why you quote unquote never punt and how many times you actually punt in a given year? Uh, the, the quick background is that when I took over, I, 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 I didn't think I was that much better of a coach in, in a lot of ways as a program runner than the guy before me. And they had never been very far, never been, never been past the semifinals and like twice in the history of the school. And I thought it, it hit me like a rock. So I started thinking, you know, I, I need to reevaluate what we're doing, how we're doing. And somewhere along the way, I came up with, I need to find the things that, that win and lose football games the most rather than what coaches say, which are, you know, they'll say run the ball, play defense. And that's not really a thing. I mean, you know, as far as far, I want to know what those things were. And I found the, I found the top three or four things. I found out field position is, is important, but it's not nearly as important compared to some other things. And basically some of the things that we've done as a result of that are, are, are punt a lot less, almost none and, and, and onside kick every time. And, and, um, you know, it, it, we get that we get that misnomer about never punting. We do punt if there's if time is of the essence, if there's no risk for the reward. I mean, I'm still weighing options now. What people don't realize, and all all the smart guys, when you're figuring out, well, he should have punted there analytically. Y'all don't think about the butterfly effect of when you don't punt much and you don't have to spend that 20 minutes a day in practice <laughs> at all on it. You know, how much am I getting out of that? And how much is the other team having to prepare and don't know how to call defensive plays for third and five or third and seven now, because there's, you know, I really don't have a tendency in that area hmm. because of what we can do. There's other things that the outlying factors that I can't even get some of the smartest guys in the world to do this stuff to factor in because you can't assign a variable. So I understand all that, but Basically, we uh, we've punted I think eight times in the last eleven years, and so you know not enough to really practice. I always have to have a timeout in my back pocket to call <laughs> and tell them how to line up and do it. So that's that's kind of where we are. 
And yet, state champions in what? 08, 11, 14, 15. Uh, and then last 16 and 17. Yeah. 17. Yeah. I couldn't remember if there was one or two in a row here or two or three in a row, I should say. Um, so, so it works. Um, and, and how much of that in your mind, how much of that is, you know, I mean, at this point, once you've won and, and in theory, then you kind of build the infrastructure of the program and and it gets maybe a little easier to train guys. It's easier to kind of build better athletes, so to speak. Um, well, and to get them to buy in. Right. You know, that, that's a yeah. big part of it too. But I mean, so at this point, how much of it, uh, of this machine that's been rolling now, how much of that is kind of a, uh, you know, uh, based on tactical, uh, you know, being really good at the tactic side and how much of it is now like just having a more of a talent advantage than maybe you had when this run first got started? Well, it's a great question. And I think that at any level, you know, you better have a lot of all of that if you're going to consistently be successful sometime every once in a while, a team, you know, again, at any level, will have enough talent to overcome a lot of mistakes, tactical disadvantages, things like that, or you've got just enough talent and you're good enough on the tactical side to overcome all that. And uh, slowly, but surely you hope you get better in all those, in all, in all those regions. But I would say this, I, it's hard to quantify him. Uh, what percentage part of that is responsible for you guys winning. But I'll say this, and I believe this with all the work, we've won seven state championships in the last 14 years. We've played all over the country as far as playing some slowly but surely uh, building the program, playing some teams all over. And I would say out of my, out of the seven we've won in the last 15 years, we would only won. I think we would have won one playing the game, playing the game of football the regular way. Mm. without the onside kicks with the punting, I think we would have won one. Now the other one, sometimes we would have done well, we would have done well and made it to the, you know, third round of the playoffs or the fifth round. I mean, I mean, or the championship game or semifinals, but I don't think we would have won. I really believe we would have won one playing football the regular way. Hmm. Coach, uh, what was the, I know the initial reaction was probably disbelief <laughs> in an area like Little Rock and Arkansas, although Arkansas and you know, the South has a certain stigma about football, but that's changing rapidly because of what's happening in Texas. And Arkansas is an interesting case study because it's bleeding over obviously what, what went on, you know, 15 years ago, starting in Northwest Arkansas. Like it's not, it's not like everyone's adherent to an old school power football, very conservative mindset, but yet this at the time when you introduced it was very progressive. Now you flash forward and people are talking about the statistics of injuries, specifically on special teams, kickoffs and punts. Do you find that people are now more accepting of it and and you aren't necessarily a fad or a gimmick? You know, I, I would like to get past the gimmick and the fat part. And the funny yeah. part, the, the, the odd part is to the media and to fans around the country, and I, that sounds crazy, but everything ends up with a cult phenomenon that's different, way different. To, to, to fans around the country, it's fun, it's interesting, it's exciting, and it, it's kind of past the fat gimmicky stage to, you know, to them thinking, okay, you just thought differently, which which is – is good. It's a, it, you know, it's actually been a bit of video on the corporate level, getting to go speak about thinking differently, but in the, in the football ranks itself, the hard part is this, when I, when people come and talk to you, there, there's, especially in, in the game of football, whether it's athletic directors or football coaches at any level, you know, all the way up to the NFL, they just can't get past the, it's, it's, it's kind of your, you know, is it making a mockery of the game? you know, that old school way of thinking or, or extreme risk aversion, like, look, I, I actually think you're right, but 
we'll lose our job on a Sunday if we punt. I mean, if we go for it on fourth and one in the first quarter, although numbers say we should go for it on fourth and one in the first quarter, we'll lose our job if we don't make right. it the next day. You know, so we have to count that small one one play sample size as success or failure because we might lose our job. So there's still some things to get over, but the gimmicky side and part of it is, is gone. But with coaches, with football coaches, I still think the gimmicky thing, the fad thing is still there, ironically enough. Yeah, it is hard. Um, it is a fraternity uh, of sorts. It really is interesting how hard it is to, to, to break through with new ideas, I guess. But um, sticking with the tactical side of things too, like what, um, you know, the game has changed a lot since 2008 and um, how, how much has your, not the, not the, 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 the fourth downs of the, the um, onside kicks or anything like that, but how much has your, just your base offense uh, changed over the last 10 years? Uh, it's changed. I mean, our offense has changed a ton and that's where I sometimes, you know, I, I love following college and NFL like a million other people do. And maybe I see it a little differently since I coach and, and think a little differently anyway, but you know, the game has been influenced by so much, so many people, whether it's the game itself and a successful team and people like to mimic that, or whether it's from the outside, you know, now we're talking about the concussion era and this and that and the other. And the funny thing is I think there's always a way to take advantage of things. And, you know, back in the mid two thousands, early two thousands, yeah, the spread was prevalent, but there was still the old run the ball and play good defense. You had to run the ball even out of the spread. And there were offenses that were formed. If you go back and, to, you know, the, especially Urban Meyer, I think was one of the leaders in that there's a lot of offenses for, and it was spread, but it was spread to run. And which does make a lot of sense to me because when you get linebackers out of the box, you know, you've blocked them without blocking them on the inside run game. And, and I don't know why not, not more people don't do that, but even back then I, I was even influenced heavily by, you know, you've still got to run the ball some. And, and I do think on some level you have to just simply to manipulate the positioning of, of the initial alignment of defense of defenders. But I've gotten away from even that and completely looked at, I want complete efficiency. I want optimal efficiency. So I always try to look back every off season and find out, you know, it does running on first down or second down or at any point in the series, is that benefiting me? And, you know, for the optimal numbers wise, but also you have to take that part out because the numbers don't tell you, where the defenders are lining up in the past game. So, you know, that's why I guess somebody came out a couple of years ago and said the most efficient play offensively in the game is, is the play action pass Right. because a linebacker has to do two things. They have to think about the run. So that delays them from running underneath pass pass routes. So uh, we've changed a lot in that world because I follow the analytics world and trying to look at the overall efficiency because they're testing so many, so, so big of a sample size. And I try to pattern a lot of stuff off. We do off of that. Then I take the things that I think people, and then this is subjective. I think people are complete idiots that are doing. And you know, <laughs> one of those is the matchup thing in the NFL. It drives me crazy the way they all talk about matchups, matchups. I want to manip- you know, get my best guy on their guy and, and, you know, basically throw it up or count on him to do it. And that's all fine to do sometimes, you know, especially if your matchup begins with you in advantage because of the leverage of that guy where you're given even a more of advantage. But, but in the end, you're just counting on my guy beating your guy. So at the end, whoever has the best guy wins, well, now you're taking coaching tactical uh, pieces out of it. And I've just never been huge on that. And, And if we've got to count on my guy beating your guy, you know, I, I just don't think that's going to be a consistent winning at the level of launching. 
All right, coach. Um, I grew up watching triple option football. That was my team. When I was a kid, it was Georgia Southern. That's what I grew up on. It's where my parents went to college. So your system to me is, is really nothing more than another system. It is not this taboo, sinful disrespect to the game thing. So along that line, we do a little role play. You've been hired to be a head coach at let's say the Sun Belt or the Mac, okay? Georgia Southern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah, I don't know about that. They really, they really don't like passing the football down there. Um, yeah, they really don't want that. Along those lines, you're in a situation at that particular level of college football in which you are not going to get the most elite players. You are not going to, you're, you're going to be lucky. It'll be a coup to land a three-star kid, right? So you've got to, uh-huh. you've got to innovate by nature, right? You know, uh-huh. this. every, every coach comes in, they try and apply a particular system to these G5 jobs, these lower tier G5 jobs. If you're pitching your, I'm just curious, how would you sell a fan base and athletic director boosters, all this on your system there? Because in my opinion, I think it would work really well. I mean, there are a couple of schools off the top of my head where I think, Hey, that would fit. Yeah. You know, number one, I, that's why, I ended up where I am as far as how we do all this stuff is because we, we were going to be a school that, you know, just got the, I mean, like everybody else in high school, you get the guys you get. And if we keep doing the same things as, as we're doing now and everybody else, we're going to get the same results, which means every once in a while, we'll be a flash in the pan and make the third round of the playoffs. But that's, that's, that's where we're always going to be. So that's why we're where we are is because I had to look at ways and be innovative and those kinds of things. And, and football is football. People can say whatever they want to. I've been, I've been fortunate enough to talk to and become friends with people at all levels of football. And the guys that I think are the greatest successes will look and they'll go, look, tactical football, good tactical football wins at any level and, and it gives you a distinct advantage. And then if you can apply every once in a while, you get that guy and you know how to build it around. It's good. I mean, you know, then, then, then you've got an advantage in that one area. So to me, what I would do is I'd want to go, you know, I think that there's three big parts uh, to any good football team. I think you do have to have good tactic, good tactics. I think you have to have somebody that's really good psychologically, whether it's, the head coach or an assistant that 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 has the really good psychology can get the players to buy in all the time because there's so many downtimes and uptimes emotionally and then you need a good system and the teams that win without a good system they're winning when they have extreme talent and that comes and goes but the teams with a good system and sometimes in my my occupation as a you know those those are taboo words well we don't want to be in a good system because then they think you know, they're not going to get recruited in college or whatever because he's a system player, and there's probably some truth to that. But the bottom line is this. You better go in and you need to have somebody that has a plan for everything and that knows what wins games and is building everything he does around those things that win games more than anything else that have been proven over and over. And I'm going to give you a great, a, just a stupid example, maybe, but it's something that we really practice you know, several times a week, we put in a period for that. And that is, here's an, here's an example. I think that people are missing out on. I don't, I don't even want to give this part away. I don't use it. I don't mind giving stuff away, but you know, in college football, I think it was last year or the year before out of all the plays run, you look and you go, is there one play that makes a difference if a team scores or not? And it turned out to be the biggest drop off from one play to the next on whether a team's going to score or not, I think was on the first play of a series. And it might've right. been last year, year before. 
And the first play of a series, if a team scored, made four yards, they went on and scored 70% of the time. And if they didn't make four on that first play, it went down to 30. So it went down 40% based off of one singular event that happens, you know, 12 to 15 times a game possibly. And so then I looked and tried to find the next biggest one, the next biggest drop off was, and I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I think it was on a second down. And I don't know if it was a second in a situation or the second play of the series, but it only dropped 18% if they didn't make, you know, if they didn't have a success rate on that play. So 40% that one. So what we do is we take all those situations that I can find that are that important and we practice them. We psychologically get our kids to buy into them. We pound them in and do all that. Now on top of that, I do think tactically I'm, I'm, I'm as good or better than anybody on offense at any level of football uh, that there is. And it, you know, people, that sounds arrogant and sounds awful, but I think if you question anybody I played, they'd be like, eh, he's pretty dang good. <laughs> so you can throw in the tactical, you can throw in the tactical part and you get the psychological part. And then you truly know what gives you the biggest advantages in football. And I say, I, I, I've termed it like this. I kind of wish I copyright some of this stuff. Getting better at football, getting better at football without getting any better at football. We need to know things to focus on that that our team's not going to get any bigger, stronger, or faster. But we got better at football yesterday because my team now knows the next team that we play, the three plays that they run over 75% of the time on the first play of the series. They know the formation, the play, and if we can shut that one down, our analytics say that that drops them from 70 to 30 on their percent chance to score. So, you know, if you can somehow mix all that together, and that's kind of the way, and I don't know if that sells for you, hopefully my excitement and enthusiasm would sell to an AD as well. But I think if you could somehow convince somebody, hey, there's so much to this, and the better you are at all of this, not just coaching ball, the better chance you have to win, and that's what you're going to have to do at those kind of programs when you don't have the best players. Because, you know, if you've got Alabama players at Georgia Southern, you can run any offense and you're going to be good, and you can run any defense and you're going to be really good. Not necessarily saying you're going to win a championship every year, but with that style of player at that level you are. But you're just not going to get them, so you better find out a way to win when you're not getting any of those guys. Yeah, I am. So, okay, I want to ask a couple. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you in the first place, we had a a quick exchange on Twitter months ago. It was basically as I fell into a little Bill Walsh rabbit hole at the beginning of the offseason, reading a bunch of his clinic uh, speeches and his book and all these other things. He had a line in there about, he talks a lot about base offense and open play, you know, first and second down between whatever the twenties or the 20 and the 30 or whatever, however he defined that. But he talked about how like in your, in your, you know, he he was famous for having the script at the beginning of the game. And he said um, he always wanted to have plays in there at the beginning of the game where you take, where you quote, take on your opponent physically man to man. Uh, He says, part of your plays are, uh, where you attack your opponent physically and find out where your matchups are. So, um, so, so coach, why do you hate Bill Walsh? But, um, <laughs> but basically like, so y- you responded and basically said, let me, let me try to pull that up. You said um, uh, on offense, I find out uh, if they will move their defensive player around 
Uh, if not, I'll sacrifice my worst on him most of the night if it's a DB and also run different guys deep if it's in man. Uh, if they keep him on my best guy, I single him up and play the opposite side of the field. But then you said that this is what I really enjoyed. Uh, something to remember, play calling heals almost all wounds and deficiencies in football. With a great system, you can put up yards and points. We have been held below 33 points twice in the last 150, or, or, uh, 150 games or so. And one of the dumbest things coaches do is rely on matchups to win. What if you don't get that matchup? Are you going to lose? And why rely on my man to be your man as a coach? You should have a better plan than that. So I, I enjoyed that, and I um, uh, I was looking forward to talking to you about that. But I'm going to throw a couple scenarios out just about um, potential matchup issues, especially you know it, it, at the college level or at or at the high school level or at a college level like the Sun Belt, where you can't rely on having you know talent advantages like Alabama every single year uh, within your conference. Um, so you, you have a situation where maybe your receiving core isn't as strong as it was in previous years or something. Uh, I'm sure you've encountered this along the way. Uh, meanwhile, you're sure, taking, yeah. you know, in a big game in the playoffs or whatever, you're taking on a team that seems to have like the best secondary in the state uh, where, where those matchups just don't really exist. And you have to kind of tactic your way into, into throwing the football. How, how do you, where do you start when you realize like you don't have that automatic matchup really anywhere you look where, where, how do you dig out of that initial hole? Yeah, let me just tell you first. Y'all need to, you, you can cut me off and shut me up because I talk too much. So if I go too long in that area, oh, just, you, 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 you haven't, you okay. you haven't spent right a lot shoot. of time with Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but in that area, in, in, you know, regarding that, I'm actually going to throw away. I, I hate to throw anybody under the bus, but it's just my opinion. I'm just a high school guy, so so I, you know, I'm just commenting, and it doesn't matter. But I'm going to give you a couple of NFL examples along the way too that absolutely drive me insane. <laughs> the first things first, and I've seen it. I've seen this both ways. Some coaches, you know, they, they recruit or they draft or they, if you're in high school and you get a kid that you just work him as an outside receiver. And then there's the old inside receivers, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But the funny part is, is I'm the least believing in quote matchups of anybody you'll ever talk to on the offensive side of the ball. But I also have a way to get a matchup better than anybody that you'll ever talk to on either side of the ball. And what I mean by that is, is the first thing I did was want to formation everybody to death. I mean, you know, if we go no back and go five wide, whether it's a three by two or a four by one in different situations or, or, or whether we do one back and it's two by two or three by one, what I want to be able to do is take any receiver and put him anywhere. For instance, say we've got a receiver named Smith, whether he's a quick one or a tall one or whatever. If I have a formation where he can be far left by himself, in a, in a whatever, but three by one or four by one set. I have a formation where he can be the inside receiver on a two receiver side, the middle receiver on a three receiver side, the inside on a two when there's three over there. So literally I have formations where I get any compilation of, 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 of receivers that I want where I want them to be. And that's important in the matchup area, but it's also important when you're play calling and you run a different kind of offense like we do. And the reason I say that is everybody looks and goes, oh, you're running, shoot, this and that. What makes us way different? And, and, and I was reading a thing the other day, and I, when I read that, you don't know how true it is, it said between 80 and 85% of all offenses in the passing game are progression. And, I, you know, I don't know what your listeners know about that, but that means your quarterback looks at one of his offensive guys, then he looks down to another offensive guy or over to another one receiver and then down to a third one. And if you go, my, my problem with that is if you, you know, you've got a, say you've got a post out combo 
uh, by a two receiver side and you say, you, your quarterback comes over to the sideline. He didn't throw it. You thought the guy was open. You say, why did he throw it? He goes, he, he wasn't open. Hmm. And you're like, well, what was he looking at? I mean, you're leaving it subjectivity to a guy that's got 11 guys trying to kill him at that moment to decide what open was. Okay. We are a true read offensive team. And what I mean by that is everything on us is geared off of reading the hips and shoulders of the defender. That way the quarterback, it's not subjective anymore. It's objective. Were his hips open or were his shoulders open? Yes. Well, then you throw it under. Were his hips, were his hips or shoulders closed? Yes. Then you throw it over to the guy that's vertically spacing him on top. The same thing that's horizontal. And I don't know if that does well. I don't know if that explains it very well, but when you're truly reading a defender, you're going to always be right if your receivers, if you can teach them, and that's where coaches don't want to do anymore either, I hate to say, and I love my profession, love the guys in it. They don't want to teach anymore. They want an instant answer without teaching where a guy, you know, where a guy can be wrong and make them look bad because they didn't teach it well enough. But if you can teach them to adjust their routes tremendously based off of, of a defender after the ball is snapped, post-snap, and you're willing to put up with the early growing pains, in theory, you're always right, and your quarterback has it easy because – He's not even looking at his offensive guys. He's looking at the defender. The guy opens his hips to the outside and throwing to the inside guy. Guy opens his shoulders to the inside and throwing to the outside guy. Now, that takes care of zone. You, 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 and, and, and it's easy to be good at zone, in my opinion, in my offense. It's a little hard. It's a lot harder in progression. And then, and then matchup-wise, man-to-man-wise, everybody's counting on a guy. You know, if we see a team that's impressed man, cover zero, no safety, they're up in our face, and this kind of everybody wants to check to a fade route. Hmm. Well, then it's just my guy against your guy. Well, that's what they're looking for. Well, out of those four or five matchups, surely one of mine's a little better than theirs. Well, sure it is a little better. And the fade route at best, at best at any level, I talked to uh, a coach at Stanford. They think theirs is about 25% completion rate on a fade route. And that sounds all good and stuff, but I'm not in 25%. (laughs) And and uh, that's top end, you know, and most of them are 10, I think. And, and that's what you're looking for. That, I'm not going to rely on that. I mean, and so we run even that different. We run quick triple move routes or even quicker than a fade route that I've come up with. So you are then at that point technically looking for matchups, but you're not just looking for matchups. You're more looking for leverage. We'll run it with the defender that's the farthest inside on our guy and man, even if it's a couple of inches or the farthest outside or whatever. Now, the problem the NFL gets into is here's my example of the NFL. I was, a, and still am, a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. Got in trouble a few years ago. We went down to Highland Park where Matt Stafford played, played them, and some guy did a, a thing a, a, a thing for the Dallas Morning News with me, a, 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 an article, and promised me I wasn't on the, you know, I wasn't, uh, this was off the record. He was asking about uh-huh. the Cowboys. I made the comment. I could go down there and and coach them better, you know, right now. And uh, that got in there and went, and, and went bad. And I got a lot of hate mail and stuff. I've got some good ones, but got a lot of hate emails and stuff. And, but one of the things that drive me crazy about them and, and uh, is, is the fact that, you know, I thought Des Bryant was a really good receiver in his prime and, and not that he's out of his prime now, but whether it's the way they used him or his attitude or whatever, he hadn't been as good, but I thought he was a really good receiver. Well, if you looked around, the good receivers, if you like matchups, you better be able to move him into the slot, mm-hmm. the inside on a three-receiver side, middle, or whatever, if you're truly looking for those matchups. 
You know, I, I watched almost every Cowboys game, and I could count on one hand the number of times Dez was not lined up outside on a corner. Well, the dumbest person to line him up on is a corner, obviously. That's the fastest, quickest change of direction the guy they have. And you're lining up supposedly your best guy on him every play. That's just dumb in my opinion. And they never lined him up in a slot. They never put him in a situation where guys had to change responsibilities, you know, run him on crossing routes or deep in routes and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you're griping because Dez sucks now. And at the same time, you know, Dez did kind of give up a little bit, in my opinion, and wasn't as good. I watched some games in person and, and could see that with my own eyes. But but to not be able to, you know, to say you rely on matchups and then to not be able to move your guy around, whether you didn't have the formation, didn't believe in him or whatever, is just so ironic to me if that's what you are relying on in the NFL is matchup. So who uh, we'll finish up with this. Um, who do you enjoy? Like what, what are the offenses that have really caught your eye over these last couple of years? In the NFL, I, I think the Steelers, you know, I, th- I love what they do and yeah, they've got good players and this and that, and they, and they really do, but I think they run, they've, they've run a good offense. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, this year and how it goes, but I enjoy watching them. I thought the Eagles was a really yeah. good offense. I mean, name the star power receivers in the Eagles offense yeah. and name another. I'm one of the, I'm one of those guys that do think this, no matter what, if you've got this three combination head coach that can get everybody to buy in offensive coordinator, that's really good at calling plays and whether it's the offensive quarter uh, coordinator or the quarterback's coach, he needs to be a quote unquote quarterback whisperer, which is able to get that quarterback to understand and make the decisions on time with the world crashing down around him. It takes the quarterback, the coordinator, and that whisper, which an example of all three of those uh, is, is I do think, I think, I think the Steelers at times, I think the whispering part between Roethlisberger and his OCs have been trouble. I think, I think San Diego has one of the nine quarterbacks, maybe 10 that can actually lead you to a Super Bowl win in the NFL, yeah. but they haven't had the coordinator obviously, or the quarterback whisperer part, but then flip it over. I think the Eagles were the opposite. They had the quarter, they had the play calling and the head coach and the quarterback whisperer, but they didn't have the quarterback, but they wanted anyway, which was surprising, but their offense and what they were able to do, maybe because they didn't have the star power and you get sucked into center and everything around him, maybe too much. Maybe that helped them. I don't know. So, but I thought, I thought the Steelers and the Eagles are my favorite ones to watch. And, and, you know, maybe I'm biased because of Peterson and where he was, and, you know, I got to coach against him in a couple of seven on seven passing league games and being so proud that he moved up to where he, you know, where he is now and, and had all that success. But those are my two favorite ones. I love watching Derek Carr and sometimes the Raiders, especially in the past couple, couple of years. But uh, those are, those are my favorite ones to watch. Yeah. The, the Eagles thing was really interesting last year. Cause I mean, a couple of years ago, I mean, I, I, I didn't, I didn't love the Wentz draft at all. Um, I thought that was way too high and, and it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I accept that I'm basically wrong about that, but at the same time, they won without him. So they didn't really need to spend that pick on him or you could spin it in that way anyway. So I've kind of gone back and forth about what I think, but regardless, I mean, if you win with your backup and then you, you're putting up ridiculous yards through most of the playoffs, uh, you're doing something right in the, in the QB whispering and play calling department. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you're not wrong though. I think let's be honest. It, that, that whole draft and the quarterback thing, the way they're doing it now, yeah. that, that's hit and miss. That's random luck. Yeah. And it's not really random luck. They're probably right a lot of times, but they don't have the play caller and the whisperer 
in my opinion, to get it done. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, let's take Aaron Rodgers. Change everything around him, whether it's on Green Bay or somebody else. He's either, you know, he could have way more Super Bowls than one, or he might not even have the one he's got right. he's in San Diego, say. You know, <laughs> I don't even think it's the players as much as it is the play caller and, like I say, the, 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 the guy that's directly helping him be responsible for his learning. And uh, so, so, you know, that's so hit and miss. I think some great quarterbacks we've thought were total busts. And it's the people, not the players around them, it's the coaches around them. And I think some of them that would have been total bust, maybe had they been in the wrong situation. But let's be honest, if they get to that level in the draft in the first round, they've all got talent. Right. So it's hit and miss. So you weren't wrong or right. And because I was kind of <laughs> with you, Wimps wouldn't have been Wimps wouldn't have been taken that high by me at that time either. But but then again, right situation, right time, and and you can't account and they have a hard time accounting for his attitude. You know, you right. don't know that he's going there and kill himself working harder than everybody else and, yeah. and uh, to get better. So, yeah. Well, Coach, we appreciate the time. Um, this was fun. I do. Uh, I, I thought it was, it was going to be really interesting to talk about things other than not punting, uh, and, and it was, so I appreciate it. Oh, no, I, lo- I absolutely love it. Sorry if I talk too much. I'm just <laughs> no. a junkie. I mean, you know, everybody says they're a junkie. I'm a junkie watching it and behind the scenes and the numbers and the psychology and the whole thing. So love what you guys do love that. Uh, you know, any, anything that highlights football, I love because I think people in America need a passion to focus on towards one common goal. And they do that in football. Yeah. And uh, we got so much other crap politically going on that <laughs> when you focus on something together and you live and die with it. You know, I think that's a healthy thing. So, and you guys help promote that. So that's awesome. Awesome. Well, take Thanks, care. Coach. Coach. Thank you guys. Uh, Bill, that, that felt weird. Uh, that felt like a moment in which you're watching two people fall in love and you're just very much a third wheel, um, slightly obtrusive just by my presence. Uh, you two could have gone all night. I, I, uh, my heart skipped a beat. We, he professed, it, it was like, he was trying to make me happy by talking about how, by unprompted talking about how much he hates fade routes. That felt good. That felt good. I still, I, you know, I didn't want to jump in. You guys are on a roll, but I don't understand how someone can hate a fade route in terms of the actual play. I understand the stats and I've been, I'm not trying to relitigate this, but it's still a beautiful thing. Lots of, stu- lots, of, lots of stupid things are beautiful. 25%. Um, all right, Bill mail bag time. Yes. Where do you want to start? <laughs> well, let's, um, I, I have been scrolling through Reddit here. So let's, let's first, um, attack some Reddit questions. We can go back to Twitter. We didn't actually solicit this week for questions on Twitter, uh, but they still just kind of flow in throughout the course of a week. Uh, people have internalized that the ask, uh, hash, ask, hashtag ask PAPN mantra. And we appreciate that. Yeah. And so real fast, let's just go ahead and say, we're not going to, we're not going to solicit you guys just hit, hit us with a question because we use the hashtag specifically. That's one, one thing we need to reiterate. If you're going to hit us up on Twitter with a question and it's like a Friday afternoon and we're not going to record for a couple of days, obviously it's going to sift through and we're, it's going to get lost in our replies or our mentions, but use the hashtag. And then that way we can get straight to it in the following episode. Uh, Bill, let's start on Reddit. That would be Reddit slash PAPN or slash PAPN in your Google browser. Mm-hmm. Um, here's one. We'll, we'll start with a nice hardcore PAPN question. Uh, days the 500 D a Y Z D 500. Um, I, I don't know if we need to share the, the, the handles here, but anyway, 
Um, what does San Diego State's post-Rocky Long future look like, and why is it that the Q, uh, Qualcomm Stadium, or why is it the Q's fault when it doesn't live up to expectations? Um, Do they mean so the attendance, it- or what, what are we talking about here? Well, let's let's answer the first part. So uh, when Rocky Long retires, um, uh, what happens at San Diego State, basically? Uh, I don't think they're going to fall off the cliff. Do you? Well, no, probably not. I mean, you'd like to think that they've succeeded enough, that they built enough of identity, and, and you're trying to push the stadium initiative uh, forward and get out of the queue. Um, you know, being able to do all that, uh, in theory, you would think that kind of improves their lot in life, so to speak, and that they won't fall back. I, I mean, it's worth remembering just how horrible they were before Brady Hoke and then Rocky Long got there. Um, just uh, mostly terrible. Ted Tolner had like one good year. Al Luganbill had one good year. Um, Chuck Long won nine games in three years. Uh, it was just a lost program. Uh, you know, he's sitting in a fertile recruiter, recruiting area, couldn't really recruit all that well, couldn't develop anything. This, the, the, the environment was terrible, uh, you know, big cavernous stadium with nobody in it. Um, but it, you'd like to think that they're beyond that now because they have built the identity they built. But we'll see. I mean, you're, again, like I, you know, you're you're one bad hire away. You are one bad hire away, but you're also you're a product of your environment, and and geography is everything to me, especially with G five jobs. And so I think that uh, you, you definitely might see some um, some drop off or decline after Rocky's gone. But if you make the right hire, I think of anything you can keep building there. Um, they're allergic to attention. They, they don't really make a lot of noise. And I think it, I think it negatively affects them. Um, yeah, you, there are three or four people on uh, SDSU fans on Twitter who are about to yell at you for saying that, but right. But that's the problem. There's only three or four. And also I'm not talking about their fan base. When I talk about that, I'm talking about the university, the program itself. I would love to, you know, I think a lot of people would like to talk more about those guys other than Donnell Pomfrey, but uh, they don't do it. We've talked about this on the show before. Um, I think they need to be more forward-facing in how they market themselves. San Diego is a really tricky media environment. Uh, It's got a really bad reputation Um, and a lot of nice places to live do that they don't have passionate or involved or connected sports fans. And, like, that's just not the case. I've been to San Diego multiple times. I've been in a previous life at a previous job. I went twice for Comic-Cons. And the thing that stands out to you most, even in the middle of something as visually assaulting as (laughs) Comic-Con, is when you are in San Diego, the amount of locals who have some sort of sports gear on repping the Padres or the Chargers, it's its nuts. I mean, I've, I've seen more Chargers tattoos on people in Southern <laughs> California than I've seen, uh, you know, people with t- tattoos of any NFL team in, in my side of the country, Titans, you know, Saints, Falcons, Panthers, whatever. So it's there. Passion's there. Uh, the stadium thing is super tricky. Uh, one thing we've definitely learned, you know, some of this was uh, a little bit of buggery from the Spanos family, but it is tricky to get a, something built right now or built at least to, to the spec that the Chargers wanted. The good thing if you're SDSU is I think you don't have to build an NFL stadium. I think the best thing for the Aztecs moving forward might be the fact that they are no longer beholden to the Chargers. Now, they've got to figure out what to do about the stadium situation. Um, I'm always going to preach for on campus barring that without knowing specifically the geography of San Diego, uh, because I've never gone on campus or visited SDSU in any capacity as a reporter. If you can't go on campus and have something that's built where your, your student body can matriculate to and from like a traditional, you know, collegiate experience, then, then do something downtown. The problem downtown is a huge hurdle because that that's ultimately what tripped up everybody with the chargers deal. So 
again, though, you're talking about a much smaller, much cheaper, um, I think more tax friendly situation with a college stadium. Now, the problem is if it's too small or if it's too cheap and it's not up to spec, you can't use it in a, in a multi-purpose capacity. Um, so, well, I think so. Basically, it, San Diego is not unique in this regard, but it's a mess anytime you talk to anybody about this kind of stuff. So I think it's going to be a part of like what I think the last details that came out and I'm not completely clear on whether this is ironclad at this point or they're still kind of not completely confirmed, but I think it's close to ironclad at least is that um, they will have, they are building a, they're planning to build a 35,000 seat football stadium uh, on on the site of the former Qualcomm stadium, which according to Google maps is about four and a half miles away from San Diego state university. They're intending to use this as part of a university expansion i can't Mm. imagine it's a four and a half mile expansion uh but it will be that's not quite walkable but it's not bad it's not miami being like 45 minutes away or whatever so um and and basically they also included in this proposal that they could if the nfl ever chooses to return to the city they could expand their stadium to about fifty five thousand on that space Mm. Uh, and, you know, a possible MLS team. They've tried to be a very flexible, which hmm. is smart. I mean, you can't count on, like, you don't want to basically say this belongs to SDSU and only SDSU, nobody else ever. Um, you you want to be flexible in that regard. But that's kind of where things stood as of last winter. Uh, and I think those are the last So, details. yeah, two days ago, there's a report here in the San Diego Union Tribune. Uh, let's see how close I was to what they're, they're at least trying to plan. <laughs> Um, oh, nice pop-up ads. Good job, American Media in 2018. Uh, let's see. The city of San Diego has approved a two-year lease extension. So this isn't exactly what we were talking about. I was talking about a little bit more of a bold or more definitive step. But basically, they're going to stay at the old Qualcomm. It is now SDCCU Stadium, which I think is San Diego Credit so, San Diego Union. County Credit. Okay. All right. Yeah, I was close. Um so they basically have extended the lease. So San Diego state will play their home games there in 2019 and 2020 in, I guess the husk of the old stadium. Um, it was a six to one vote in favor of a lease extension. Um, I don't really know or care why this one councilman was against San Diego state playing football. It seems kind of dickish, but whatever. Um, so they established the lease in 2009. Um, it, I, I honestly, it's, it's sort of the only thing you can do right now because you've got a building you've got a tenant that wants to rent it. It's not ideal, but it's better than letting the the building sit completely empty. Right. Certainly. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's not, this is never going to be an optimal situation, but it does seem like it's not, it's not bad. And, um, and again, it just takes, you know, vision and an identity and the right hire and they got them all. They, they, they nailed all of those within the last decade and now they just got to continue it. It's, it's really fun. I love that. I mean, they've created a unique identity. I, I, you know, if I picture like San Diego state offense, I'm picturing like or anything in Southern California, I'm thinking like, well, Hey, they should be wide open and da, 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 da. But they've built a very physical identity that their fans, I mean, obviously not a, an enormous fan base, but their fans really adopted that identity too. I mean, they'll, they'll question your manhood more on Twitter than anybody other fan base in college football. And it's oh pretty, God, it's pretty don't challenge, don't really, challenge the other fan bases. They, they've really, really uh, adopted that. And that's cool. They just need to, you know, maintain that fan base. They've got bring more people in, uh, create a better environment. And they're at least trying to do that. If you're a G5, you got to get an on-campus stadium. You got to get something that's unique to your school. It does not matter the size. I think one of the biggest things that we've seen fall apart in the last 10 years in college sports is this bizarre need to build out your stadium. 
I know everybody has a theory on this. Television's got too good. Um, you know, every game was on television. Millennials don't care. What, like whatever stupid reasoning we saw a, and look, I don't buy a lot of the attendant stats anyway, because I see how they're formulated and it's very much an inexact science, but right. yeah, we are seeing the major stadiums in places like, you know, Tennessee is a good example because they had a massive facility. They, they underwent a bad, bad, long sustained run. And now you're seeing them struggle to sort of fill that stadium up and create the environment that once was. If you're in the G5, I have never met an administrator, fundraiser, coach, booster, whatever, who said it's better to rent out one of these off-campus pro facilities and try and manufacture any kind of identity or game day spirit inside one of those facilities than it is to have a small, dedicated resource on campus every single time. So Tulane did this. They got out of the NFL Superdome. They went and built a small on-campus stadium, which if you know anything about New Orleans, is on their side of town. I mean, I can go, it's nonstop. Cincinnati has their own. I mean, when you start talking about AAC teams or top tier G5 teams, you know, the good thing about Mac is they all, they all pretty much have their own facilities. Um, the AAC was in the QSA had a lot of schools that were borrowing facilities and more and more of them have moved towards their own dedicated stadiums on campus. Um, you know, Houston just renovated theirs. Cincinnati has a great facility in Nippard. Uh, trust me, right now, it, there, it, it is a passionate conversation at USF and something that really bothered uh, the coaching staffs that have rotate, rotated through there on game day is the fact that they have to go and play in the Buccaneers Stadium. Um, they don't like it in recruiting. They don't like it logistically. Yep. The athletic department doesn't like the lease. Um, this is actually not that bad of a lease, to be totally honest, but I think it was because of the circumstances being so unique and that you had now have an empty NFL stadium in San Diego versus those other places. So, um, all right, next question. I am going to use Twitter before I jump back into Reddit. Um, this is a weird one. Um, so uh, the handle will tell the story. Um, Hudson center at OU sooner fan 11 over the past few podcasts, when comparing schools to other blue bloods or big schools, you've mentioned Texas rather than Oklahoma. I think he's talking about me. Uh, it is because he only tagged me in this. Yep, that's uh, right. Is that just the first team that ever comes to mind, or do you think Texas wins the championship before Oklahoma? Um, well, not at the moment. Um, if I had to, like, go, like gun to my head, life on the line, I would probably say Oklahoma. Um, I think Texas will be good again. I mean, they're both national powers, perennial. I know Texas has the more recent national championship but that's so deceptive because look at what oklahoma's done in that span yeah oklahoma's in infinitely better shape at the this exact moment but i, yeah. I mean i assume like nobody's richer than texas that's why it comes up first in your mind yes um it is not an internal or external bias i promise you hudson center whatever at OU sooner fan 11 is this a common thing bill um because you're from oklahoma oh there's like, always you know, Oklahoma is basically Texas only smaller and it's always going to be smaller than Texas. Uh, and so there is always going to be, I think a little bit of a, a chip on the shoulder in that regard. I have but a question also, for you because this stuck. Okay. I'm doing research on another story. You probably figure it out, but I read an SI piece that was written recently about Texas A&M. And in that piece, just as an anecdote, talking about fan culture, they were they, they mentioned the University of Texas and then they mentioned Oklahoma, but they called them both wine and cheese fan bases. Dude. Now, 
Texas, I, I get it. I get it, dude. I've been to Austin. I get it. Been to Austin multiple times. I've never been to a game at Norman. Um, I'm a wine and cheese fan base because every, every Oklahoma game I've ever covered is either a bowl, a road game, or a Red River. I've never thought of Oklahoma. Now, I mean, they have expectations. They expect to win. They um, So they're going to kind of look down on you. They're not going to be... Uh, you know, they're, they're just not threatened by a lot of schools. And so that's going to impact their viewpoints to a certain degree, but no, I've never really, but like, were they ever supposed to be bougie? Like because I when, so. when I go to red river, I don't see bougie. No, I, I, it, you, you don't really see bougie that much anywhere in Oklahoma for that matter, but right. no, I mean, it's Oklahoma freaking Homa, but I will say, I mean, earthquakes and land that can't grow anything. And, and, and people are really emphatic about shotguns, by the way, I'm not, making fun of any of that, by the way. I can't remember if I've told that story before, but I mean, Owen Field is probably the loudest stadium I've ever been in, except maybe Nebraska. Norman Uh, is? Yeah. I mean, it gets, and and, okay, this may be a good example of like, but basically this was the 2007 Oklahoma, Missouri game. Um, Mm -hmm. I I have this, that entire Missouri uh, season, you know, cataloged and memorized, but I assume others don't. That, That was the year, obviously, OU or Missouri ended up almost, uh, making the BCS title game, but their only regular season loss was at Norman. They were up, I think it was 24, 23 uh, early in the fourth quarter. Uh, and oh, I think, OU had just scored or something and Missouri gets the ball back their 15, 20 yard line and the crowd, like, I, you know, their crowd is kind of like a Nebraska crowd and that, the, you know, if the visitor, if the visitors do well for a while, well, that's cute. That's good for them, but we're going to win and we know it. Uh, but in this game, you could tell they, they they did not know for sure there was anxiousness in that crowd Mm -hmm. uh and that anxiety turned into the most lot like you know how sometimes if the camera is really high it starts to shake when the crowd Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. my eyes my eyes were doing that like i couldn't focus on the field because of the noise around me um and i swear that's what caused uh chase daniel and jerry macklin had a uh they fumbled an exchange uh curtis lofton picks it up and takes it for a touchdown that turns the game around they go ahead and win i swear the crowd caused that fumble because you couldn't think see or hear in that environment and so really yeah but that was fourth again that was fourth quarter and they were starting to get a little antsy uh first quarter it wasn't the most amazing environment i've ever been in because they expected to win so maybe there is a little (laughs) okay i totally believe everything you're saying I had a couple of preconceived notions and I need to, I let me backstop this by saying, I don't really think we're friendly with Oklahoma at its SB nation or unfriendly. I don't really think we've ever in, like gone one way or the other. A lot of that is Bob Stoops. Cause you know, like none of us are really chomping at the bit to sit down and do an interview with a guy who doesn't particularly like the media at all ever. I got 17 minutes with him one time. That's what he, that's what um, he said. I said, I'm not sure how much time you got. He said, you got 17 minutes and we talked for 17 minutes anyway. Wait, you said I'm not sure how much time. Well, and then I always he, try to give them. He that told out. you exactly. Yeah, I, I always give them that that out so they know. Like I'm not, you know, going to try to chew their ear off for 55 minutes or something. That was the only time. God, I've he's such. Time. God, he's <laughs> such a dick. But he was also awesome for those 17 minutes. I got a good 17 minutes. All so right. I, anyway. I appreciate that. Okay, so I've never been. Combine that with the fact that my estimation. And by the way, I would love to. So don't get love mad it. if you're an love Oklahoma it. fan. It's love not my issue. Um. I've done Red River. Like I said, I've done bowls and row games. Like the last time I saw OU play in person, I think it was in Knoxville. Um, my, so here's my preconceived notion because they play that, that passionate, super passionate game against Texas in a neutral mm-hmm. side every year. I think it reduces the home schedule a little yeah. bit. Right. Yeah, it does. Also, it 
the facility on television and in photos, now I know they've done a lot of work on it, always struck me as really wide and really, uh, I guess, like sloped out. And my estimation yeah. of that is always that it doesn't keep noise in. No, I think it's, it's kind of the, like it, the cameras are pretty high up. It feels like it's pretty being in there. feels very high sloped. Let's put it that way. It keeps the noise. I've, I've it doesn't feel, but like just from field level, like I'm looking at these photos right now as we record this, it, it's not a steep facility. It's not Nebraska, but it's still one it's, of the one of the dirty little secrets about places like Death Valley and LSU is that it's just like it's barely up to code, like right. in terms of how steep and dangerous, like in certain parts are, and it just creates a it, it fishbowls noise, right? It captures yeah, that's that's noise. Nebraska too. I can definitely vouch for that. Okay, it's, all it's, right. It's, well, it's, uh, so but here's the last thing. They always strike me as like the Atlanta Braves. And I say this as someone who's an Atlanta Braves fan, perennial favorite, go to the playoff a lot, you know, don't, don't lose a lot, but like, but during the regular season, like when the Braves were winning 110 games, they were never like lit, you know, like it wasn't and, and exactly to a firing. Viewers, to our younger viewers who might not remember the Braves ever being this good. They were. <sighs> Sorry. Bill, they were in the playoffs like, like four or five years ago. Yeah. Okay. So the Pirates, what, what really, what is that? Are you trying to beef as a Pittsburgh Pirates fan? Kind of, yeah. I always, I'm Jesus. always going to have a Braves beef. But anyway, yeah, you're okay, right. Cool. About- yeah, we won like well, we won like 25 divisions in a row. So eat it. Um, my point is Oklahoma is, is is comparable because there is an expectation, like you talked about at Oklahoma. It's just perennial, and so that combined with maybe a lackluster home schedule, I just never, I, I never thought of like, oh man, Gaylord Family Stadium is is on fire right now. <laughs> yeah. The name, the name does not do it for any favors. Um, no, absent, right of the, absent of the home game against Ohio state. When have they had that kind of environment, you know? Right. Like you're right about the Texas thing, because that does, I mean, as a Missouri fan, like I know that, you know, when Nebraska would come every two years, that's when like you would get the best crowd because there was an anxiousness because, well, for a while you knew you were going to lose. And then yeah. after then, you know, so you brought your underdog, your underdog voice to the, to the proceedings. I know you never has an underdog voice. Uh, you know, they did play, I think that's probably part of the reason they do pretty aggressively schedule home and homes in non-conferences because yeah, I mean, you're, the crowd's always going to get it up for Oklahoma state. I would hope that the crowd gets up for TCU at this point because TCU's very good, but it's still not Texas. It's still not the main rival. Um, and so that does kind of impact, you know, the, uh, you know, the air of the place or whatever, but it, it does mm-hmm. get up. I, I will say like, I, I've witnessed it getting crazy up, even if it took kind of an upset bid to do it. Um, here's a strange one. Okay. I guess it's not that strange and we could probably talk ourselves into it. Chandler white at call me cha underscore chai. That's as good as you're going to get when you get that fancy. I've always thought Paul Johnson would be a great fit for the Citadel job <laughs> when he inevitably leaves Georgia Tech. Can you see him making a transition to a smaller option-centric program, or do you see him retiring post-GT? Chandler, I see him retiring from Georgia Tech and I, possibly just being like going out in a hail of gunfire. Um, <laughs> can know, you name, Bill, like this used to be more of a thing. Yeah. You used to have a senior circuit type of moment. How mummy, yeah. How mummy, jumps to mind like jerry glanville right. i guess um he's still by the way a cfl defensive coordinator june jones um and, and we're sort of mixing guys here who well not the not how but like june jones jerry glanville both ex-atlanta falcons coaches uh mike sherman they're all in the cfl now mike sherman okay like i don't know if this happens as much anymore right because i think that the emphasis on hiring has as selection selection committees um 
not selection committees. Uh, what's the uh, hiring firms? Essentially, the guys that you hire, so you yeah, can yeah, inevitably yeah. not have all the responsibility search, when, search when the hire is bad. Search firms, thank you. Um, they 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 are very much trending. Uh, there's no trending. They they have trended. They have shifted the entire conversation towards younger, more dynamic right. coaches who are a little more friendly with the fundraising aspects and the multimedia and everything else. So Citadel would be interesting though, because they, it couldn't, it's, I'm not saying it wouldn't, I'm not saying it couldn't happen. Pop-up ads. My God. Um, I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I'm saying. Yeah. The most likely scenario. I think he's just going to be tired, but at the same time, this could be a situation where he's a guy who just can't function without football in his life. So he just goes down to like the high school level or something, uh, or this, or like a Citadel type thing. That'd be amazing. By the way, that would just, because you'd forget about him for like six years. And then the Citadel would beat like would randomly win the Southern conference and show up in the FCS playoffs. And you're just like flipping through on a Friday night. and you're, Oh my God, Paul Johnson's on television. And it would be amazing. But yeah, the chances are you, pretty you, good that he would. You would get that fired up, you think? Oh my god, I would get so fired up because I would have like, even though really? I keep up with this stuff, I, I would at least I would still not ever be mentally prepared to hop on to flip through the channels and see Paul Johnson pacing the sidelines for the Citadel. It'd be the greatest thing. It's all about uh, the I, I think he's retiring. I think he's retiring, definitely. Um, uh, back to Reddit. Yep. Uh, handle name idioms are stupid. Yeah, kind of. Um, would Kirby ever leave Georgia for a job like Alabama or Ohio state or is Georgia his final destination job? Um, I'm going to scratch Ohio state and focus on Alabama. Uh, I think number one, I, I mean, my, my gut says, he, well, he's young enough that we shouldn't ever say final destination. Cause I mean, it's, he's got a long career ahead of him uh, that will take some plot twists. We don't see, but uh, he, he's a Georgia alum. He's quite possibly going to win a national title at a place where they thought they've really yearned to break through for 35 years and haven't. Um, and so like, I, I could certainly see him having a very, very long tenure there, but I would say that Georgia fans, Clemson fans, a lot of fan bases are going to get really nervous if Saban ever like unplugs the CPU and officially retires. Um, until you find out who Alabama is going to go after, I think you'd have to be at least a hair nervous. Uh, I can't believe I'm going to say all this. There's absolutely no reason for Kirby smart to go to Alabama. Especially no, there's not, but now. it's still going to be out there. I think. And on top of that, he won't do it. Okay. The level of commitment that's been shown this early on in the process if anything, when Nick Saban leaves Alabama, Kirby Smart will be even more fortified, even more motivated to stay at Georgia because then his greatest rival will have just shut down. <laughs> and and they'll probably reward him with like a $28 million a year contract. Kirby Smart isn't going in. Kirby Smart isn't going back to Alabama because he's turning Georgia into Alabama. Right. I really hate making yeah, that, Georgia that, that, football fans that happy. Why did you make me do that? <laughs> You know, we had to balance that out. We just talked about San Diego State. Um, so we had to, you know, balance. Argo that. Nation. How much of an impact could Comcast dropping the Big Ten network in non-market areas affect the standing of the network? Is this a situation where further down the line, the network could be in a similar situation to the Pac-12 network? Uh, Argo Nation. Comparing those two networks is probably a fool's errand, if only because um, for a moment, possibly, you know, they may figure this thing out with Comcast. But the Big Ten network permeated. I mean, it was in more homes than the SEC network for a while. I think it might still be. 
Um, the Big Ten Network was the reason why all this stuff happened. I mean, also, it's been around for 11 years. The first game on the Big Ten Network was uh, Michigan App State. It was a long time ago. Comcast dropping the Big Ten Network is definitely an issue. I think this is this scenario is not a doomsday unto itself. I do think it's going to force conferences and networks both together, those who have collaborative relationships like the Big Ten and Fox and the ESPN and the SEC. Uh, but I think together and separately, they're going to have to rectify what the market on the consumer side is going to look like in the next 10, 15, 20 years. This is why every time we get a question about realignment, I say, don't look at the models of the past. We don't understand what the paradigm is going to be. Same here. Um, in the short term, Comcast dropping the Big Ten Network is a non-market. In other words, what they're doing is, is not offering the Big Ten Network on their, base sports, uh, on their base package or their sports package if you live in Florida or if you live outside of the Big Ten footprint. Um, if that happens, yes, it's going to affect them. It's going to affect their revenue. Um, is it a trend that could emerge? We don't know. Right now, the one thing I'm really interested in it, to see is what kind of trend are we seeing, not amongst highly educated post-collegiate consumers, but, but the, the whole of the American viewing audience in people cutting the cord and adopting these, these set-top you know, streaming providers like, like me. Like I have YouTube TV now and I had PlayStation View and I was eager to cut the cord a long time ago. I mean, I had, I was, I was pulling random streaming, you know, passwords and, and, and services uh, to have a cord cutting college football viewing experience before those platforms existed. But I am very much in the minority. Um, I want to know what the trend is like. I want to know how powerful these guys can be for how much longer. And what I'm talking about is like Comcast and direct TV, the big guys, you know, charters, another one. Um, Time Warner, that's another one. Uh, depending on whatever city or part of the country you live in, you're probably yelling out a different name right now. Cox, that's another one. Um, who's your cable provider, Bill? Uh, currently Mediacom. Uh, okay, right. That's So there's the other end of the spectrum, which is that out, as you go dotted throughout the United States, there's all these like really small, sometimes, sometimes alone in the single region of a single state. Yeah. Uh, providers. And so they have to do deals with all them as well. And that was why, uh, Bill, do you remember when the SEC Network debuted, they pushed um, Texas A&M and South Carolina and Arkansas and Auburn to week one? Yep. They put both games exclusively on the SEC Network and they did that um, specifically to, I mean, they, they were bullying everyone who hadn't jumped over and signed up to pay more money for the SEC network, but essentially it wasn't even bullying at that moment. I mean, it was literally creating a demand and creating a market panic where the consumers who were on these smaller regional cable networks in the SEC footprint all the way from Texas to Carolina had to say, oh, God, we don't have this. We have to have it. You know, it was a dirty trick, but I mean, that's how that's how these these things work. Um, I don't know how different it is that I pay YouTube TV $35 and you pay, I don't know. What are you paying for your basic cable package? Probably 50 bucks or something. Uh, God, ask my wife. I don't even okay. know. Right. So it's a bill, right? And, right. and it's a bill that I'm paying. And I know that YouTube TV is paying ESPN some sort of money. Um, ESPN plus is definitely going to be something to watch. We did. I, did you get a lot of mentions this week? Cause I did relative to the show about, <laughs> Please help me out here. What is the Italian soccer league? Serie A. Serie A. Okay. La Liga is Spain, right? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, 
they are joining in with with ESPN Plus. ESPN Plus is going to be the way it will not be called ESPN Plus in five years. It will be called ESPN. And much like many predicted a long time ago, like back in 2012, 2013, you're going to pay for for ESPN the same way you pay for Netflix. And I do think the way that cable providers sort of survive is that they become the back end suppliers of the actual bandwidth. Now, how all this shakes out, I don't know. What you, I don't ever know if I'm being redundant or if I'm educating a portion of the audience for the first time or if people care. But we do get a lot of questions about this stuff, so I know people are interested, at least in in the effect that it has on college sports. All of this boils down to the fact that a long time ago, like I'm going to be really morbid for a second. When your grandparents passed away, right? They had cable in their house and they had cable in their house for 20 freaking years. And your grandmother or grandfather may not have given a rip about ESPN. Maybe all they watched was like Nat Geo and PBS. All right. There were millions of people like this. There were millions and hundreds of millions of people in America that didn't like sports bill, but you know what they were doing? They had cable and they were paying like multiple dollars a month out of their cable bill to ESPN Mm. and Fox, but mainly ESPN. And that's why ESPN was able to land the NBA contract. That's why ESPN was able to lock up what pretty much every, every major league in college sports, at least in some way, shape or form, they're launching multiple networks. That's how all that happened. That is going away because now people are saying, you know what? I don't care about sports. So I don't have to have cable because like, you know, Netflix eclipsed HBO this year for, for Emmy nominations. Right. And this affects sports. So it affects sports because what that means is that the primary consumption of high-quality, you know, scripted television, reality, movies, whatever, it's all coming on a non-demand platform, on an, off, an off-cable platform. So that means less people are just randomly handing over their $7 to ESPN. That's the whole short of the whole thing right there. Mm-hmm. I don't know how all this is going to shake out in the future. Bill, would you be fine with getting everything that ESPN, ESPN2, ESPNU, uh, what, SEC Network, and ESPN Plus? Did I miss anything just then? Uh, the OJ. No. Classic? Yeah, classic. Classic yeah. still a thing? Yeah. It's, it's, I, we, I, we don't games? have it on HD, but I think it's in like the, you know, channel okay. 26 or something. Okay. If you had all that and then you – you took all that and then you put it for like fourteen ninety nine a month and it was an app. Mm-hmm. Would you, you would do that. I would do that. We'd all God do yes. that. Right. God. Yes. So, so just do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be, I, 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 I'm growing less optimistic about the future of the digital consumption. Like we, we Netflix is an unabashedly good thing for us. Like we, we, we adore it. Um, but Disney wants its Netflix and ESPN is going to eventually work its way towards it. It's Netflix. And suddenly we're going to have this uh, environment where you have to pay yeah Netflix X month per month and ESPN X per month and da, 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 da. And I think it's going to be more costly than I believed it would be a couple of years ago. Um, it's going to get kind of gross, I think. And I don't, I don't like where I think things are headed at this point. But I, just want, I just want a really goofy, like insane realignment that is like, has to do with like Instagram followers or something. I don't know. Just something <laughs> that completely shifts the emphasis. I do love, I mean, I like knowing, I like having a, like a, the confidence that I kind of know what's going on or what's happening. And after a while, we kind of got to that point with realignment. We understood what the driving forces were. I'm excited about 
the next round of realignments because of the exact opposite, because we know nothing about what's going to drive what it's so it's that's, that's exciting to me uh, even more than actually kind of, you know, getting to getting to be right sometimes. All right. um, James curl on Twitter uh, at James curl or curly or curla or, or however uh, you pronounce the last name uh, is, is there a way to quantify a coach's confidence in their kicking game? Number of attempts beyond a certain distance or number of times a coach goes for it on fourth down versus attempting a lengthy field goal attempt. Um, yeah, I've, I've had this, that thought in my head for a while, but really uh, one number that will tell you a lot is total field goal attempts. Uh, I, I just brought this up basically so I could reference my, uh, last week's Vanderbilt preview in which I, I had not noticed this, but it was amazing. Uh, Vanderbilt attempted seven field goals last year. Hmm? Uh, for reference, Utah attempted 35. <laughs> Uh, now that's absurd in its own way. Like go freaking go for it on fourth down Kyle Winningham. Um, right. But six teams kicked at least third, had at least 30 field goal attempts. Vanderbilt had seven and they made three of them. Vanderbilt made three field goals all. So he's had a bad kicker or what? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kind of, that's what it seemed like. Now it gets a little weird when you start diving in, like they only, they also only attempted 24th downs, which was not bad, but it was middle of the pack. So it wasn't like they were constantly going for it and they were generating, you know, for Vanderbilt, at least a decent number of scoring opportunities. Uh, So part of that was maybe just some randomness of never having a fourth down between like the 20 and the 35 or something. Um, But there's no question. Their kicker was very bad. Tommy Openshaw went three for seven all year. Um, and, or maybe he was just rusty. Uh, he's like, well, oh, crap, I'm not, I'm not used to kicking beyond 20 yards. But, um, but that was really, really interesting. Rice, by the way, attempted five. Was, what are the, do we have any metrics on, as to why? Was it bad kicker or did they just give up? They were three for five. So, you know, it, it, that, that might have been that and UTEP also only having seven field goal attempts might have been a case of them not generating many opportunities. Army, though, Army only attempted eight. They've got the perfect fourth down offense. So, of course, they're, I mean, that, that kind of makes sense. Uh, but they were also, there were three for eight, but that, that really is like the, the five teams that uh, attempted under 10 field goals last year, three or four of the five made under 50% of the ones they took. So that kind of tells you, I don't know if there's a better metric than just looking at that um, because that, that'll tell you quite a bit right there. Oh God. Charlotte went four for 13. <laughs> Hashtag SPA Ben over on Twitter, Matt Opper. Would Luke Fickle be better served to stay with Hayden Moore and the veterans in hopes of scraping a bowl game at six and six, or should he turn the reins over to the fruits of two very good classes and build for a big 2019 and beyond? Is there a right answer? Uh, Matt Opper um, talking specifically about the Cincinnati Bearcats. Huh? This is a really good question for a lot of different reasons. Um, you have to, you have to stay winning or stay, stay, looking Luxury. like you're winning immediately that like when you're Cincinnati, you can't, you can't say, Hey guys, we're going to shut it down for two years. Um, well, I mean, at the same time, if you're, if you're good at selling things, you could probably sell the, the idea that we're, we're in a youth movement. It's going to take a couple of years. Why don't you join us? You know? Yeah. Cool. Cincinnati is recruiting really, really well. Cincinnati is not really, really good right now. Um, Cincinnati is in the middle of sort of a, like, uh, incredibly large boat trying to make a turn maybe not a 90 degree turn maybe not a 180 degree turn but a turn i think that's fair to say there were some recruiting frustrations that the staff had looking at the roster both 
in terms of like depth and direction, but also in the way like the previous staff, what they had done, emphasis that had been placed. It's a pretty common thing that happens. Tommy Tuberville, you know, we had a, what, three, two, three questions ago about, you know, why doesn't, why don't you go with a senior coach going down to a smaller thing? I think when you lose age robs you of passion in a lot of areas and recruiting is, is one of those places where you have to have an inordinate amount of passion, right, Bill? Sure. So, yeah. I mean, I, he, he didn't recruit terribly, but uh, Fickle's definitely recruiting better. He didn't recruit terribly. There was definitely some questionable moves there towards the end, some frustration people on that staff had talked to me about. Now Fickle wants to recruit and apply. You know, look, Luke Fickle going to Cincinnati is just the same as like when we're talking about any Saban assistant going somewhere, whether or not it can be replicated. You know, there's there are ex-Saban assistants right now at Georgia and at Louisiana Lafayette, right? So is it, can you, can you apply the saving mindset at both of those places the same way, same time? No, but the same thing goes for the Meyer deal. You know, everyone's talking about how much, how, how Meyer-esque will things look for Dan Mullen at Florida? Well, I mean, look, Fickle was, you know, he is part of the Meyer tree. It is Ohio. He's from Columbus. He's going to apply a lot of what Ohio state does and expect, you know, not expectation to necessarily be a national title contender at Cincinnati, but they're going to be highly aggressive in recruiting. And one of the things that they really can't abide is, is having any lack of anything less than a 110% sterling reputation for involvement and visibility and aggressive recruiting in the Cincinnati area, which has always been historically, I think when people talk about Ohio in recruiting, they're really talking about that Southern part of the state. So I think you kind of have to split the difference there, Matt, because one of the things you can't do is signal that you're completely going one way or the other, or you'll lose part of your locker room. If you go entirely with a youth movement, this is a problem that plagues every head coach who's in their first, second, sometimes even third year, where you are building a faction of your guys, right? We always say they're all my guys. Well, no, they're not. They're, they're not. <laughs> when the tape recorders go off and you're not on the radio, they're your guys. They're, they're guys you inherited. And, and some of those guys you inherited are problems or don't fit your scheme or maybe don't have the kind of attitude, mindset, whatever. The problem is you still need those bodies. You need those people to play football, which is a very physical game and requires a lot of effort. So what Fickle can't do is go strongly in one direction or another and say, hey, look, guys, all you young guys that I, that I sold the, the crap out of to come here and be, be a different kind of an elite Cincinnati or, you know, you, or hey, all of you guys um, who are on the roster who just have seniority and have experience – you can't just go directly in one direction or another because the, because the guys you recruited your ass off to you, I guarantee you, he, he promised them some aspect of competing for playing time. Right. And then the other guys, if they know, Hey, it's all about the new guys here. We're, we're the old trash. We're getting thrown out. They're going to quit. And worse, they're probably going to try and poison the well. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I, I think it's just a situation where like Ty goes to the younger guy, but don't like, probably yeah. unless yeah. you are as charismatic as PJ Fleck and you're doing it in your first year. Yeah. It's really hard to go into a full on video game style youth movement. Yeah. He, he did it and they went freaking one and 11 and then they rallied from there. Uh, but I think you, if you're going to even try anything like it, you got to do it your first year. Now that it is in a second, he's been working with Hayden Moore for a year and a half. Um, the good news, <laughs> as it were, is that Hayden Moore was bad last year. Uh, the entire offense was bad last year. And so if somebody does start to, if one of these freshmen does look like they might at least be at the same level or close to it, then yeah, play the younger guy. But you, you, you're not going to go in and say, hey, redshirt freshman, you're starting. Hey, freshman, you're starting. Um, they still have to beat out the older guys or at least tie them. 
Uh, I got a question back on the Reddit from Frank o- Franco Solo. Uh, on the topic of Lane Kiffin's future on your friend's podcast, Holly stated, <laughs> quote, Gus leaves Auburn. However, Petrino gets hired Lane to Louisville, end quote. Thoughts? Uh, one, I don't know what podcast you're talking about. Uh, two, uh, Gus leaves Auburn. Petrino gets hired. Lane. To- Why is Gus leaving Auburn? Yeah, I think at some point the Petrino Auburn. Actually, you know what? Yeah. You know what, Bill? You're right. I was going to, I was going to jump on this thing one way. Let me jump on it this way. This idea that Petrino is like a lock, uh, a turnkey deal at Auburn and LSU and Florida is not true. Okay. Let me say it one more time. This is me now with the reporter hat on this concept, this idea that Bobby Petrino is the next man up at any one of these like top tier sec jobs that are having problems is not true. Everybody get that? Bobby Petrino lied to his boss about hiring a woman he was sleeping with to be his subordinate at a public university in Arkansas. On top of that, he has a rich and colorful history of being an asshole. I'm not told that by people at Louisville. I'm not told that by people at Arkansas. I'm told that by everyone, (laughs) including those places, okay? He also leaves a smoking crater when he inevitably abandons your school or gets fired in which you have to clean up a roster of kids who don't care, who were, who were promised X amount of things that you can't fulfill, a, almost always a divided locker room and a support staff and administration either disgusted with or terrified of or both the football apparatus at their university. Now, Auburn, Bob. I don't think, would be frightened of hiring. Auburn is not hiring Bobby Petrino. But if they don't, it's because he's lost his fastball, not because he's an asshole. I'll say that. Like, you're willing his to fastball is not good enough to compensate for him being that big of an asshole. Not Ear anymore. Earmuffs. It's not five years ago. Uh, right. And that's, and I mean, you know, this is an interesting year for him because we've basically written Louisville off this year. Um, but they return a lot and they have a four-star quarterback, you know, replacing Lamar and they really could actually still be like an eight win team. And I'm, I'm curious how that impacts. If he just continues winning eight or nine games at Louisville with Clemson in the same division and all that and scaring some teams, like maybe he hasn't, maybe it's our imagination that he's lost his fastball, but he kind of, Last year, last year, kind of, it was a wasted opportunity, and he can't seem to hire a good defensive coordinator anymore. So that those are signs; those are warning signs that I don't think he's the name that's going to replace uh, Malzahn if Mal, if or when Malzahn ever actually leaves. Also, if you, if you're an AD search firm walking through the dealership and someone says, "Can I interest you in a less asshole-ish, uh, more reliable, more respectable, younger <laughs> version of Bobby Petrino?" Let me named, introduce you to Jeff Brom. Name Jeff Brom. Yeah. You're going to take that every time because yeah. that dude's at Purdue right now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now the back end of this, which is the actual real question, Lane to Louisville thoughts. Um, here's what here's what I know about Lane Kiffin. He's happier than he probably should be right now. <laughs> he's really he's having a great time being a contrarian. Um, he is enjoying Boca because he's Lane Kiffin, and also I guess because it's Boca. Uh, he is not leaving for just any job. Now, I think Lane at Louisville is a, it's a fun fit. It's a pretty good fit. Um, I think he'd have to have the absolute right kind of athletic department around him. Um, man, bringing Lane Kiffin into Louisville after everything they've gone through, that's, that's a punchy move. That's a bold strategy. But uh, 
it's not outside of the realm of possibility. Right. On the Lane Kiffin side of things, this is what I hear. It's going to have to be really good for Lane to leave. And it probably, kind of, I mean, it, we it, don't talk about it, Bill, but he can sustain at FAU yeah. for as long as he wants. No, he's going to, he's going to have a talent advantage. We we're just talking about all the ways you can, you know, win without a matchup advantage. He doesn't have to worry about that because he's going to have them. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, he can just keep right on burnishing that, uh, that reputation and, and he doesn't have to move. I, I assume he'll be gone within two years still. But he yeah, I went to. He doesn't have to be. Um, I I kind of hate to wrap up with this question because it's gonna. It, it, I, I have a very cynical answer answer prepared. So you look for one more, and I'll just whip out this cynicism real quick. The big. Oh, wait, so what are we doing? So we're we doing two, or yeah, are we doing? Do, you do one. I'll I'll do this one, and then you find one more. Uh, the big Kahuna on Reddit asks, "Who, in your opinion, is the first G five team to win the national title?" Uh, in parentheses, UCF's national championship claim this year doesn't count. Um, okay. My God, it does. No, I, I can't, I've been, it's been the optimism here. The hope has been beaten out of me. My answer is I think Toledo because here in a few years, when the power five separates itself and a few of the G fives try to form, try to move, go along too. And they end up with like an 80 team top subdivision. Toledo probably won't be able to make that move. And then they'll win the FCS national title. Ah. G5 you can't team. prove me wrong. You can't prove me wrong. I, I hope that that is massively, woefully incorrect, but you really can't tell me for sure that it is. Look, it's really hard to say. Like, you know what? Let's, I'm just going to stick with the half joke, half half honest FAU this year after they beat Oklahoma. How about that? I don't know. UCF again. Yeah. The whole thing's rigged. Um, all right. Final question, or do you yeah. want one more? What, for, final question, as long as it's one that isn't quite as uh, pessimistic. Uh, okay. This is optimistic. Which cat, which current power five head coach will be in their current job longest, which current five. So I, I guess they mean of, of anyone. Uh, and this is why a tittle on Reddit. He says, uh, I'd pick David Shaw. Who's young wins consistently and doesn't have a fan base that expects more than where they are currently. He also doesn't seem too interested in moving laterally or to the NFL. I don't know if he's not I, interested. I, yeah. I, think it's I just could that, still see him jumping to the NFL. I think there's a cushion at Stanford and all the things that you just said that aren't that make certain NFL prospects seem not as appealing. So it's not that he won't go to the NFL. It's just finding the right NFL job. Yeah. I don't um, see him moving to another college job, um, but I could still see him moving to the NFL. Longest tenured of right now in the P five. We're just going to pause. We're going to put yep. the dead air in the show <laughs> because both of us are, I know buzz. Yeah. All right. Here's my answer. You ready? I haven't thought about everybody in the P5 as I do this, but I'm just in my head as fast as I can. I'm sitting here thinking about it. You ready? Sure. Chris Peterson. Okay. That's my answer. Yeah. I mean, that's a good one. And obviously, I, can't, I mean, I, just nobody here's, so here's what I did in my brain real fast. I discount the major top 10 jobs because the volatility is just, is what it is. Even, even Alabama and Nick Saban. Of course, that's a meme on our show. So when I look at like the big 12, I discount Lincoln Riley and Tom Herman because the expert, I mean, the math tells us it's getting shorter and shorter, right? Right. Like, like Oklahoma's not going to have another Bob Stoops. There's going to be a situation like these things are just happening at a rate at which you're, you're changing coaches every five to six to seven years, even when things are good. I think you have to look at really unique situations. Peterson went to Washington knowing that, that he would make one more move in his career. Um, because he stayed at Boise for so long. So I think I, yeah, that's my answer right now. Um, 
You could obviously go the Debo or uh, Kirby route if you wanted, because they are both still pretty young and maybe one of those turns into a Bobby Bowden situation or both. Um, I think the correct answer here is Kirk Ferentz. Was that a joke? (laughs) Not completely, but no, I mean, along those same lines, uh, Pat Fitzgerald. Long pause. I mean, I guess stable nerd schools are the answer here. Yeah. That has to be. Yeah. All right. We'll go Pat. How about Fitzgerald one Peterson two. And you know what, David Cutcliffe, you're going to outlive all of us. How about that? All right, Bill. Uh, we will be back on Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Something. I don't know. Next week. We'll be back next week. Uh, by Bye, the Bill. way, go us for aiming to do two 60 minute shows and doing like a combined three hours of podcast this week. Dude. Yeah. And until I miss every deadline I've got right now for the preview. So we'll see how long this lasts. Love y'all. Roll Tide. Yep.